Coming to you pre-recorded from a cramped closet in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a New York City apartment far too close to the street. It's your favorite millennials with too much time on their hands. Welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. Hello, and we're sorry. We're the Red Team Reviews Podcast, and this episode is very late. We apologize. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> May was a May. Um, <laughs> it was May. It was going to be May, and then it made so hard. Um, <coughs> so the voice you are currently listening to is the voice of TJ Patrick, and I am joined by Taika Waititi's number one fan. Trevor Catalano. It's not in, probably not entirely true. I, I like the guy. <laughs> Like, I really was excited. Would you say you have a director or an auteur that's kind of like your guy? Uh, no, I tend to go more for like authors and actors, um, Mm. in terms of like what gravitates me towards a project. Um, like, or, or sorry, when when I talk about like favorites, like, like having Taika direct a project will make me gravitate towards it. Um, as will like a couple other directors, but like, um, no, it's it's not quite that. I, I, that's not how I kind of think of my favorites. But I, I was very excited that this episode was was going to be made, that we were going to go for the latter half of the acronym of uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, and we're going to do one of the premier Pacific Islander uh, Maori celebrities, directors, creators today. Uh, male models. Uh, what? <laughs> A lot of people are thirsting over Taika now. I mean, um, he's got, here's the thing. He re, He's reached that age where it's like, he's still young enough, but he's like grayed out. And so it's like, okay, all right. There are people who are doing like that thing with him. And I'm like, I respect it. He's a very attractive man. Daddy. Yeah, he's there. Yeah, daddy. It's like him. <laughs> it's like him, Oscar Isaac and Pedro Pascal. The people are just like the daddies. Although it's weird to say that about Oscar. I still do feel like Oscar's like, I mean, like give him like five, ten more. They're years. all the same age. <laughs> They're all like va- vaguely the same age. It's weird because you had uh, Oscar Isaac as Poe alongside Daisy and John, who were both literally right. Our he was age. easily nine years older than them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. But yeah, it, the, like they uh, are. Also- they are to the twenty twenties. And the late 2010s, what the Chris's were to like the early 2010s, where everybody was like, which Chris? And it's like, no, 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 it's not about the Chris's, it's about the daddies. Uh, why do I feel like the title of this episode might have something to do with daddies? <laughs> <laughs> well, daddy and boy, we're talking about the movie Boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Um... So what was I going to say? Because now, now it's gone. Well, it'll um, come back to Um so we're talking about three Taika movies, three written and directed Taika movies. None of them are franchise movies. Um, I mean, I guess you could call... Yeah, you hear that? There's no Thor Ragnarok here. Nope. Go about your business. We already talked about it. Um, and the new one comes out this summer, and I'm scared after Multiverse of Madness. Um, completely different director, obviously, but I'm still scared. Um, anyway. Um, but, like, before we go, like, what... So you asked me if he was like one of my favorites. Like, do you have any like history with Taika's movies or was it really just what most of us encountered, which was we saw Thor Ragnarok and we went, wait, who's this guy? And a bunch of film bros were like, that's Taika Waititi. How do you not know Taika Waititi? 
Do you know what we do in the shadows? How dare you? Was that your experience actually, or? <laughs> actually, um, remind me when Thor Ragnarok came out. That was 18, right? Uh, yeah, no, Black uh, Panther. Yeah, I think that was fall of 2017 or 17. Yeah, it, I remember it was like a few months before Black Panther. Yeah, I'm pretty because sure. yeah, that was 2018 um, February. So then, I think gen- technically, I watched uh, or tried to watch what we do in the shadows before that. Okay, okay. Um. And I think it's a little bit more fitting to talk about that when we talk about what we do in the shadows because of the rest of my opinion on what we do in the shadows. Okay. Um, so in that sense, my only real history with Taika Waititi is knowing that he did what he did to Thor and um, he was originally supposed to be way more involved with Moana. Um, I forgot about that. And that was originally going to be a very different movie. Um, and honestly, it's kind of debatable what we would, what if like, which version of that movie would be better because yeah, then you have someone of that, uh, culture more so at the helm than, you know, white guys as it usually happens. But also from what I heard, the original pitch was for Moana. It's like, oh, well, so we went from a kind of typical archetypical sounding Disney movie to another kind of typical archetypal Disney sounding movie. So I don't know. Um, Yeah. Wasn't it going to like follow Maui instead as like a young main character kind of thing? No, I think it was more like it had a little bit more boy, boy versus girl energy. Oh yeah. Uh Moana had brothers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Yeah. So, you know, who's to say? Who's to say? But uh, I guess, uh, unless you have specific history. No, it's just like, it's been, because like, we're recording this after this whole Star Wars celebration and people getting, I mean, I we it, it had been known about for a little bit, but it's starting to get like back in the news that he's doing a Star Wars movie and so people on tiktok are going in on like the whole i think that the the term that's been used as of late is like it's called like the jennifer lawrence theory um and like i guess for guys it's like kind of like the chris pratt theory where chris pratt has done some other like or has been in the public eye in a weird way aside from this theory but essentially it's like when you start to see the same creatives over and over and over and over again. And you, at first you're very charmed by them and everybody's very endeared to them. And then over time, the more that they do, the less people kind of like it's diminishing returns to the point where then people are like, I don't want to see anything with that person in it ever again. And that's kind of the question that, that everyone's asking about Taika White right now is like, are we putting this man up on a pedestal for him to disappoint us? Cause I feel like we're doing that. And I'm like, we might be. We might be. I want to applaud his work in this episode, but we might be. Speaking of his work, boy. Yeah, so we're going to talk about boy, what we do in the shadows, and then Jojo Rabbit. And boy, like, it's it's worth noting that, like, boy was, like, several years prior to what we do in the shadows, which I think is probably more so his first, like, mainstream adjacent, like, piece this is this feels very 
I'm young and just kind of trying some things out and I'm emulating some other people while injecting my own style with it. Like he was 33 when he made and starred in this. And I think that's so different than him being 45 now and making something like Jojo Rabbit. So I think it's like worth noting that this is like his early work. Um, So yeah, uh, I can do the plot, right? I mean, seeing as how we have three movies, I think we kind of need to be a little smart about it. But if you would like to do the plot. Well, I think that all the plots are very simple is my point. Like I can like all I'm not going to go into exact details of twists and turns. I'm going to give the general overview. You might have to say a bit more about Jojo Rabbit. But like, yeah, the first two definitely. Well, it can kind of be summed up in like a sentence or two. Yeah. In each movie, you hit a you hit a point where it's like, okay, cool. Like this is just. This is the story, and we're going to look at it from 16 different angles, and then we're going to resolve it. Like, it, there is not a lot of twisty, turny going to a lot of different places in these movies. Um, so, yeah, so Boy is about um, a uh, young uh, Maori uh, boy that everyone calls Boy. Um, I believe he's named after his father, and that's why he was called Boy, and it's like a junior kind of thing. Um, but it's the entire town calls him Boy. Um, and you get to see kind of the, this, uh, uh, Maori like settlement in New Zealand, um, that's, you know, lower class, um, you know, on the, on the brink of poverty kind of thing. He lives with his aunt and all of his cousins with his younger brother, Rocky. Um, his mother has passed and his dad is nowhere to be seen. Well, the mother has to leave for some few, I think it's a funeral, um, out of town in Wellington. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. In Wellington. And they, so she leaves the entire group of kids under his supervision, which I'm like, the eighties were crazy. Um, and then in that time period, the deadbeat dad played by Taika Waititi shows up, um, looking for a stash of money that he hid many, many years ago. And so, uh, boy has all these fantasies of who his dad actually is in his head. He makes up stories to tell to other people about how cool his dad is. And even when his dad is around him, he fantasizes and romanticizes the things that his dad does when really we can see the reality that his dad is just an, an older child who is unable to raise a child and has abandoned the family. Um, he runs this crazy horse gang, which is just two other deadbeats who ride around with him and are trying to uncover the money. And it's really a series of boy idolizing his dad over and over and over again. And it's uh, a long road for boy to finally realize that his dad is not the person he thinks he is. Um, the money gets uh, found and eaten by a goat at one point. They steal a bunch of, uh, you know, covert, uh, a covert weed farm from a neighbor, um, which gets the dad beat the shit out of. And basically the dad slowly just breaks apart when he can't find the money and doesn't know what to do with himself. He, uh, ends up abandoning the boys again and um boy realizes that he has to go uh about the world on his own and and look out for his little brother it's a very simple plot and i will say i guess this is kind of spoilers for um what i think about the other two movies we're going to talk about but i will say of all the three i was technically the most entertained and invested in this one why is that? I mean, I do think there are funny moments, and for me specifically, there are a lot of relatable moments. Um, me having this weird menagerie of a childhood of 
I am an only child, but then I also had these other family members that were, you know, I had like a half brother that I didn't, wasn't always living with. And I had my cousins that were, you know, just as much my brothers as anything, anything else you could consider to be brothers. Like we grew up together and we spent a lot of time together and a lot of our bullshit adventuring and imagination, it kind of remind it. It hits that energy for me that was definitely a part of my childhood. Um, and if it weren't one of the one of the probably the most cliche things you could do in movie storytelling, because a lot of storytelling almost defaults to being about, you know, three things more or less love, saving the day and your parents, because. I mean, you spend most of your life with your parents, usually in some way, shape, or form, or your entire worldview is shaped by your parents in some way, shape, or form, whether they're there or not. Um, Most movies are going to be about stuff like this, and so if it weren't for the fact that this is kind of a movie that you can see everything coming from a mile away... I think the kind of offbeat, simple nature would be really kind of, like, chill and calm. And it could almost, in a way, be, like, kind of a comfort movie. Uh, But then, as I just said, it's kind of a, you know, mostly a predictable movie that kind of takes its time getting to where it's going. And you know where it's going after, like, maybe the 20th minute of the movie. So it's like, okay. Yeah, I I very much agree with that in that like the the things that I like about this movie are largely but to the benefit of us talking about it like the the playing with playing with film is what I like about this movie. I think the plot is basic I I actually wish that this wasn't quite a feature length. Like I think you can accomplish this plot a lot sh- in a lot shorter of a time period, um, because at a certain point, about halfway through the movie, it really just does feel like a long road to disappointment. It's like you know that boy is going to get disappointed, and you know that there's going to be a watershed moment with his dad finally failing him in a way that's too big to to get past, and you just kind of have to wait to get there. And as that kind of ramps up, you get a little bit less of Rocky's drawings and a little bit less of boys' fantasies. And I'm kind of like, okay, cool. So we kind of lost what I liked in the beginning of the movie with the way that the plot just kind of had to progress um, to to get to where we wanted it to be. So that was kind of that was kind of one of the things that made it hard for me to finish the movie. Yeah, and in a stunning turn of events, I didn't finish the movie. <laughs> The man um, wants to be, have a podcast, and he doesn't finish movies. Well, okay, I think of the two of us. <laughs> I typically do finish all of the movies. I may sometimes 15 second forward on them <laughs> and 10 second forward on them. And to be fair... I watched at least 30 minutes of all 40 of those fucking movies on this tur- on the tournament that we had in March. If you're interested, it is a not Disney animated movie tournament. Go watch it. We worked very hard on it. You can't watch it. Many hardships. It's Please not possible it. to watch it. It's an audio medium. Sorry. You can't watch it. <laughs> I'm used to 
Look, I'm a, I'm a YouTuber by trade. <laughs> um, yes, go listen to it. Go listen to it while you watch my YouTube video. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> that was an act- actual joke. Um, so... Yeah, so I mean, the the all the rest of my notes the, that was all like kind of my big thing. So like if I zoom in on my my actual notes, a lot of them really revolve around like what are going to become like Taika isms as he kind of grows into the other films that he makes. Um as well as like I can see a young filmmaker and and screenwriter like playing with some other styles uh that are more characteristic of other directors and things like that um and there are some stuff that's like tight that i really like and it's it's really the the dad stuff um and how the plot unfolds that i think is like kind of not tight so like i don't know if you got this but like the very beginning of the movie felt very west anderson adjacent with the way that boy was doing his never seen a west anderson movie you are uh, Okay. Do you at least understand from trailers of Wes Anderson movies what I'm talking about? I mean, maybe, but every time it seems like every other time somebody says Wes Anderson esque, and then they show an example, it's like, oh that, oh wait, no that, oh that, oh wait, no that. It kind of flip flops between like Moonrise Kingdom and then Grand Budapest Hotel, which feel like technically like they're two half sides of the same coin, but like. One looks very specific, and then another has more of a specific vibe. So I think I kind of know what you mean um, in the sense of, like, maybe the vibe part, not necessarily the aesthetic part. Um, yeah. Well, it's very much like, hello, this is the setting, and uh, I am the person in the setting. This is what I do on a day-to-day shot of them doing the thing day-to-day in a very kind of, like, matter-of-fact way. Um this is my brother. This is my thing. And then it shows like something, something quirky or characteristic about each person as you, as you bite your way through like the setup of the world that you're creating. And that, so that to me felt like very Wes Anderson adjacent. And I think there's like a version of it that becomes kind of his version of it later on. But like in the way that like the way, even the way it was like scored, like the music at the time, I was like, okay, cool. This, this feels very Wes Anderson adjacent. Yeah. I liked the dad fantasies, but the problem is like thinking back to when I watched it, I can only think of like two of them where he's like a samurai and stuff like that. Um, I liked it. It was one of those things where it's like, okay, cool. This is the conceit of the movie. He's got to fantasize about his dad and in the different things that his dad can do. Oh yeah. It's the one where he's like a soldier or something like that is the first one. Um, And it was, that was fun for me, but yeah. Yep. I think Taika's favorite word is dickhead. Because it sounds funny in their accent. I mean, you certainly get that feeling. Um, one thing I do like about this movie specifically is that, like, it's not a world that, in terms of cinema, we don't get to see all that often. Um, and so I really love the way that, like, culture comes through the movie, like, in, in the way the their social class and mobility and their relationships to things like Michael Jackson and like McDonald's, like McDonald's, like we're going to a community where McDonald's is a treat. Cause you know, they don't have anything around them. Um, and then 
even amongst seeing, you know, American culture of the 80s permeating down to them, you also see bubblings up of like, there's like a scraggly Maori comedian on the TV at one point. Uh, And so you can tell it's like, oh, the stuff that like is in their world and the stuff that's in like the overall world kind of coming together. And I appreciated the moments where we got to see though that overlap in the movie. And truly like you... So when you say you identify with some of this stuff, are you like, are you identifying specifically with boy or are you identifying? Cause I identify so hard with Rocky. <laughs> I identify so hard with Rocky. It's not even funny. I, I, with the way like he draws and all of his drawings are based around superpowers and people look at him like, where well, you're so weird. You're just sitting there and drawing and being quiet. And then when he looks back at people, he's just like, I'm just doing my best. I'm just here doing the things that I like to do and I want to do them. And I identify with that so hard. Yeah, I would say there's elements of Rocky and there are elements of boys experiences and just like the whole vibe of, you know, there's literally nothing to do except just kind of like explore the area around your house. Kind of, um, of course my, Excuse me, because I'm specifically referencing the stuff with my cousins Mm -hmm. in which we were largely kind of let off the leash a little bit, I guess, because there was three or four of us at any given time. So there was not a super strict thing of like, you know, well, you can only do this. You can only be here. When I was by myself, it was much more of like, okay, but like only to the end of the block, only to, you know, that end of the street. Uh, kind of thing, because it would be very easy to lose just me. Um, but when I was with my cousins, it was very much similar to the whole, like, you know, just shit-talking, just, you know, Im- all the imaginations at a 10, and just, you know, looking back at all, some of the stuff we did, it really was just like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> um... But yeah, I also relate to, you know, being the weirdo, obviously. That's literally been my label for any time I interacted with with like kids I didn't know uh from as early as what, maybe pre-K to now. <laughs> so <laughs> that literally never changed. I never had a a mo- I never had a phase where I was cool. I never had a phase where uh, I had a bunch of friends around. I never had a phrase where where anything was going any kind of other way other than like, you're kind of weird. <laughs> and I go, yeah, but that's like endearing, right? Like the movies. And they go, no, it's just weird. <laughs> well, so <laughs> well, so that's the thing is that like this thought kind of just occurred to me. It wasn't in my notes, but there is a part. I think there's a part of me and I don't think it's just because I identify with Rocky more. I, I kind of wish Rocky was the protagonist. Like, I mean, Rocky has more of an actual like personality, right? Like he has traits. Right. Well, cause yeah, boy's whole thing is like inheriting, trying to inherit and emulate his father. Cause that's at the end of the day, that's what the movie's about. It's about two boys who want someone to look up to and want someone to learn from. And that person's just not there. And so like it, I guess if you're going for that movie, it is important that boy is the protagonist. So you see his disappointment and, and him learning the wrong things off of this role model. But on the flip side, I'm like, but Rocky's kind of the heart of the movie and the, the kind of 
altered perspective on things. Like, I would almost rather watch Rocky observing his brother doing these things than just see Boy doing them. Does that make sense? Would you say he's then kind of the piggy? Oh, he's definitely, if we're talking like Lord of the Flies, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and like his relationship with, uh, with the, the homeless man and, um, and then like, I will say this, it is, I really do like the fact that Rocky has a, a fixation on like superpowers and like, like when he's afraid of his dad and the dad's gang in the car. And we see that through his perspective, I think is a brilliant moment, but uh, like the fact that he's obsessed with superheroes because everyone always told him that he was so powerful and he had superpowers. And that's why his mom died in, during childbirth with him. Um, and I'm like, Ooh, yeah, no, that's a, that's to me, that's like tight writing. Um, like that's a, that's a good justification for, and or not to say that you have to justify it, but that's a really nice way to tie his interest in his, the way he sees the world with an event that is independent of him. Um, and at the end of the day, like th there's a scene where because boy is emulating his dad and the dad doesn't want Rocky to just, you know, or like Rocky's off doing something else and they both encounter him and they're like, yo, well, yeah, no, you're coming with us now. You're doing you're doing this with us now. We're doing the fun thing. And Rocky's like, I just want to do what I'm doing. And they're like, no, come on. And I was I have an all caps like let Rocky play his own way. I want to play my own way, TJ. People didn't let me play my own way. And that's why I feel really hard. That's why I identify so much with Rocky. Just let them play their own way. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I Yeah, I experienced a lot of that, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what happens when you have the half-brother I had growing up who is literally the opposite of me. He's yeah. very mainstream and cool and was always kind of popular and wanted to do the normal teen things of like going to parties and socializing. And I was this weirdo that was straight edge and liked to read and was, you know, just kind of off doing my own stupid thing. And that just never changed. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of empathizing in this movie. I mean, either way, that that's all my notes. I feel like I squeezed every last drop out of this movie. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. But yeah, we I'm do start to see. Did. Yeah, we do start to see the, the, the beginnings of some Taika isms, the, you know, creating a sub fantasy or going going the extra mile like you start to see the the beginnings of it the, the movie doesn't do it all the time and it it's like you also see like creative camera angles where like whenever whenever the other two gang members are with the dad you always see them as like a one two three facial shot um and then that's repeated with the kids when they're at the dinner table like you're starting to see him play with some of the stuff that then is going to become interesting in his later stuff in this movie so I just realized a uh, potential title for this episode could be Daddy Dickhead, technically. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy Dickhead. <laughs> Fucking egg. Here's the thing. I have I have mentally inherited calling people eggs in my brain. Like, I'm passing people on the subway and I'm like, fuck an egg. <laughs> or like Jeez. I have a, I watch a, I watch a political TikTok and then I go and get in the shower and I have a, a metaphorical political argument in my brain where I call and then at the end of it I'm like you're a fucking egg 
So I can't wait till I get to say it out loud. That's your signature line. Fucking egg. Your signature mic drop. Okay. What we do in the shadows? Oh boy. 2011. 2011? From this from this point forward, I am actually scared. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm, I'm genuinely scared. Um I mean, yeah, you might be you should be maybe a little scared of the the following this movie has. This is a cult classic. Uh... <laughs> Congratulations, TJ. You put another little target on your back. I initially tried to watch it because I found out that it did have this sort of cult following. And uh, I believe, I forget who referenced it, if it was Cosmonaut or if it was Lindsay Ellis. Somebody, somebody definitely, um, I think it might have been Lindsay Ellis in that same video that I learned he was uh, supposedly very attached to, he was attached to Moana initially. Um, but, uh, somebody name dropped this movie specifically and there was actually a joke that was, I mean, yeah, it was spoiled, but like, it was the joke that made me, I think, watch the movie initially in the first place, which is, you know, leave me to do my evil bidding. What are you bidding on? I'm bidding on a table. Yes, on the internet. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Leave me to do my evil bidding on the internet. I'm bidding on a table. Uh, (laughs) Um, but... Yeah, so I tried to watch What We Do in the Shadows a long time ago by this point. I think before I even moved to Vegas. Um, and because that was a time in my life where I was like finding all these movies that I hadn't really watched yet. And I was watching kind of all of them. This is around the time where I watched the a lot of the Muppet movies for the first time. And I watched That's pretty accurate. I watched uh, the original Alien for the first time and finally experienced the black stereotype of yelling at a movie screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I think I distinctly started Aliens and then went, eh, and then turned it off, um, which I feel like will come back one day. <laughs> Maybe. You might have to reckon uh, with that. That should be the new, we're, we're changing the podcast. It's just every movie that TJ has ever turned off, he has to sit through. Again, <laughs> to be fair, it's not that many. It actually it's it's I always note it because I don't do it a lot. Mm. Like I always note whenever I don't finish a movie, it's like, yeah, then it was actually something really didn't work. <laughs> um, Or if I fell asleep on a movie, which also does not happen a lot up. So, OK, um, <laughs> <laughs> Trevor's like, I already went through this pain. I had seen, I had actually, the thing is, this was my first time watching it all the way through. I had actually watched bits and pieces of the FX TV show. um, And I had seen plenty of screen caps on the internet of, of scenes and jokes from this movie. Um, So I was really excited going into this to finally actually watch the entirety of the movie. And I know that we are different on this, but I will say I laughed out loud consistently with this movie. And it's, this is where, I think we really actually start and it's not just Taika bringing this in like Jermaine Clement is actually definitely contributed to this as is Reese Darby. Um, And this it's this kind of humor coming out of New Zealand that Taika kind of gets to take and run with because he's the one writing and directing a lot of this is like before we get into the details of it, what I want to say it is, is like it's kind of and this pervades through like 
Korg's character in in the Thor franchise, and it pervades through Jojo Rabbit, and it pervades through Our Flag Means Death, is that like it's like dandyism. It's like the characters are a little bit of like these genuine, like this is actually their personality. There's nothing fake about it. They're just little dandies. And the way they go about the world is just a little bit like, these are the rules. And, and, you know, we're all just here to have a little bit of fun. Let's all be respectful. And that's kind of the humor that they're going for in this. And I'm curious as to like, if that's what doesn't work for you. Um, so... It's very difficult to put this into words. There's one thing I really can, and that's my first viewing experience, that I absolutely can tell you exactly what works, what doesn't work. It's then when I continued finally and watched the rest of the movie where it's like, how do I put into words what happened here? Um, So my first viewing, I thought it was kind of fun and cute, for like the first like 10 minutes, 10 15 minutes, uh the house argument and then they start floating and hissing and then they have to awkwardly come back down into the chairs. Like I was like Yeah, I had that note. <laughs> That's a very I was funny like, moment. This is the tone of the movie and I'm I'm here for it, but I'm just kind of waiting for the thing that makes me, you know, actually interested in the movie and not just kind of like watching it passively cuz that's not a thing I like to do. I don't like to really passively just watch movies and have them wash over me. And then I go, all right, that was okay. And then I, you know, walk away from it. Like that's when I, for me, if a movie does that, it means that I don't like the movie. If a movie is very, it makes me very passive. I don't like it. Um, Then yeah, then uh, this is absolutely not the right movie for you. Yeah. So. Cause, cause this movie, this movie is not about the plot. Like, this movie is a long string of setups and jokes with a very loose, eventually they're going to go to this thing that they set up at the very beginning and, and something will happen and then we'll kind of just be at the end of it. Like it, it is, it is a low stakes movie. Yeah. Um, so my first viewing like I said, I, I I enjoyed it well enough for the first 10, 10, 15 minutes. And then I had a point where I said, fuck this movie. It was a very 180, like, okay, the switch flipped. Nope, turn it off. I'm done. Although I don't I don't think I did turn it off because I saw all the way until, like, um, what the fuck is his name? The guy that uh, gets turned. Nick. Nick. I saw all the way up to, like, them, conver- like, you know, hunting down Nick and the woman in the house and stuff like that. So I stuck around after this, but specifically where the film lost me ever really liking or loving this movie was when Tyka's character Vigo uh, is having a conversation with a woman and then just starts draining her blood right there. Oh, and it gets really, really messy. Yeah. The gore. <laughs> it's not even the gore necessarily. It's just, I have an issue with how the comedy was done because it very quickly goes from funny to very not funny very quickly. And it's because you show it. I think if you just hard cut in the middle of a sentence to the aftermath and the whole, uh, I nicked an artery. I, I just got everywhere. Oh no. 
oh no, like, you know, that might have worked, but having a woman, like, say all her hopes and dreams and what she hopes to do after tonight and then slowly killing her is very not funny to me. It's like, do you think that happens multiple times throughout the movie? Cause I think like that to me seems like a little bit of an outlier to a lot of the it, other stuff. It feels like it. Cause literally they do it the right way. Like later on with Nick and like the, when they just, when Nick opens a door and it's just Vigo doing that same thing, with the other woman that came. He's like, fuck. Yeah. And it's just a quick, like, two-second gag. And I'm like, that is the exact way that I thought you were going to do this. And that is kind of funny. <laughs> so I'm like... Well, I, I think I think on that note, then I think, because most of my notes are about the jokes, like, we can go back and forth on the jokes. So just to kind of give an overview, like, we already said this is a very loose plot movie, so I'm going to say it in, like, basically two seconds. This is a group of vampires who are all roommates... And they're all just kind of foppish, dandyish people from different time periods. So you have they they've all been all over the world and and they still kind of dress like like it's, you know, Victorian times or even older than that. Um, they have a fourth roommate who is like a like gross, like Nosferatu, Nosferatu vampire. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they mill about Wellington and uh, there's other vampires in Wellington. You get to kind of you get to kind of see this underground uh, environment. There are werewolves as well. Like like this is a world where these things exist, but they're kind of just regular people. Um, and the ma- major plot points is that like there is a mock a documentary crew. So it's mockumentary style. There's a documentary crew following them around so they can get an invitation to the big like meeting of the underworld festival at the end of and that what that happens at the end of the movie along the way we track they during the filming of this another person gets turned into a vampire his name's nick and it kind of juxtaposes for a lot of the film what old vampires do versus what a new vampire would do and how someone would experience that and on the way there's just a lot of moments where they cover vampire lore in a funny contemporary lens on the thing and so, like, the funny thing is that the movie opens with, like, the New Zealand uh, documentary board. And I'm like, I actually have to wonder, if you make a mockumentary, can you get support from documentary boards? <laughs> I have no idea how that I was works. Like, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I kind of think they might have. Um, I just love, I so, like, I'm really going to go through it. So, like, I just love when we first, the first thing we see of Taiga is, like, he wakes up, you see the coffin open, and then he, like, floats up and he just turns to the camera and it's just this big goofy smile and I'm like he's such a fucking doof like that was the moment for me where I was just like okay great this is I, I like where we're going here um and introducing the roommates and like when he when uh when Vlad is like having that weird like spiritual sex when he opens the door and he hisses and then they close it and go oh okay cool yeah and then he opens it again and it's just normal yeah um I think very that's funny. genuinely my favorite gag in the entire movie yeah um, I love when they're uh, confronting Deacon and about him being the messy roommate and they're like, yeah, no, you haven't done all the bloody dishes. And then you turn and the dishes are actually covered in blood. Um, it's just fun stuff. Uh, you know, we, they talk about when Viago got, got turned into a vampire and there's all these, uh, like old timey drawings of like the castle that he went into for refuge one day. And then he was chased out of there and then he was bitten. And then it cuts to him sitting next to Peter and he goes, and that vampire was Peter. And now I'm a vampire. Um, just in that like matter of fact kind of way is very funny to me where like they amp up the, it was horrifying and terrible. And now I'm here and everything's great. Um, 
when they're talking about Vlad's past, he's like, I tended to torture when I was in a bad place. And so I don't do that anymore. I'm in a better place. Uh, like you said, the floating hissing stuff. When they finally do like the title sequence and they have their faces superimposed on old timey photos throughout all of history. I'm like, I like that when they're in drawings and photos. I think that's funny. Um, stop me at any point. Uh, like, I really love that they play on every, they don't leave a stone unturned in terms of like vampire lore that they have an opportunity to play with. I can't think of a single thing from vampire lore that they can't do. The fact that Viago had a, 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 a love that he followed to New Zealand and uh, she gave him a silver locket and it burns him, but he still, he still wears it um, when they're going out for the night and they don't, they're not able to look into mirrors. So they have to give each other fashion advice. I think that's a very funny sequence. Uh, like they have to be invited into bars. So they're looking at each other like, well, where can we get in? You are like, oh no, no, I know the bouncer over this one. He'll invite us in and it'll be fine. Like the things they have to do just, they made me laugh out loud as I was like, oh, that's a, that's a fun way to address that. Um, the, the mechanic where whenever you're turned into a vampire, you stay the age that you were. So there's a lot of kid vampires and those, and they talk to the kid vampires and the kid vampire, they're like, what are you going to do tonight? You know, you're going to go eat some pedophiles. And they're like, yeah. Um, I think that's funny. Um, I like, uh, I forget the name of the character, but Deacon's, uh, servant, his familiar, uh, who's just a house, a New Zealand housewife who basically is just an employee desperately trying to get a promotion, which they play up in the series as well. Um, that she, she just wants to be a vampire so bad and he just keeps stringing her along. I think it's a very fun dynamic that we kind of see culminating in the end. Um, I actually laughed at the big gore moment that we talked about a second ago. Um, I like when his servant is bringing people for them to eat and she's just calling people being like, yeah, hi, do you remember me? I used to sit next to you in English and it's all just people that she hates. Um, it's all funny to me. I'm, I'm just going to keep going. You know, stop me if you have opinions. But I mean, I do think that that concept is funny. I do think they maybe should have played up how bad the people were a little bit more though because it's like i mean I, I feel like there's just like comedy cards sitting on the table with that and you're just kind of leaving them there and i'm like are you are you really not going to show how bad these people are because then there's like a catharsis as well but i mean oh, oh, oh okay um also yeah the thing that really stuck in my craw about the, like the one that i really didn't like was just because I mean, she just seemed like a very nice, normal person, and I witnessed somebody die. <laughs> it was just like, that's a little too real. Eh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a little too real. Uh, also, I may be a little bit more sensitive towards that stuff when it's women, because of the stuff that women tend to go through in real life, so it's like, oh no. Yeah, this was 2011. Oh, no. That that yeah. Um I I don't know how I feel about the line. I did laugh at the moment, but I don't know how I feel about the line about when they talk about like why does it have to be virgins? And they're like, well, you know, it doesn't have to be virgins, but like think of it like a sandwich. Like you'd probably enjoy your sandwich more if you knew for a fact that no one had fucked it. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about that line on principle. I just think it's well delivered. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, and the fact that they call the spaghetti Pischetti, um, 
And it's just insane. The fact that, that uh, Vlad turns into a cat, but they, they establish literally moments earlier that he can turn into all sorts of animals, but he has a very bad job at faces. And so there's the little cat with his fucking face on it when they're tra- chasing Nick and trying to eat him. Like it, that, at that point, the movie is just the, like, I would say if anybody was like, listen, I want to watch this whole movie, but I only have like this amount of time. Should I, I like skip through it? I'm kind of like, listen, up until like up until Nick gets bit. Yeah, that's the funniest portion of the movie. Um, like to sort of say a thing that I would have ordinarily saved to the end, but it's really relevant now. Genuinely, I can see why this was turned into a show because it feels weird as a movie. Like, yeah, if it genuinely feels like. All the way up until Nick gets turned, it could ju- have just been an epi- like a pilot episode of a show. And then it's like, you know, The Office, but what if vampires? And the fact that it does have a plot and, like, is, I think, like, what, 90, 90 to two hours long? Yeah, it's, it's a little, little shy of 90 minutes, I think. Like... It's just kind of weird. It doesn't, like, for what they're trying to do, it doesn't really lend itself to being, like, a movie. So I'm more so just now just kind of yeah. like, I wonder why you made it a movie then. <laughs> yeah, you're right, because we could have had one episode that was just... And it really is, like, the structure of the movie is a little episodic because we spend this, like, second night out with Nick having been turned into a vampire where it's Nick going around telling everybody he's a vampire and essentially that's what gets them in trouble later. Uh, like you could have had a whole episode of Nick basically being like, I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. Fuck. Like that, that seems like a second episode of the, of the series. And then you have another episode where you deal with the werewolves, which I think the werewolves are very fun. Um, to the, to dab more than just vampires is a fun dynamic. And also just their whole like wolf pack attitude and the werewolves, not swearwolves is a classic line. Um, it's very fun. You can have an entire episode about them discovering the internet um, and Stu. Like, Stu is a fantastic character idea to have Nick just bring his human friend around. Um, I think they're dynamic. And it's funnier that Stu just doesn't say anything. Um, that he's just around while they're all being ridiculous. Um, I loved the line when Viago, when they're getting on the internet for the first time and they're searching for things, and he goes, yeah, no, like, can you, I lost a wool scarf around 1910. Can you find it? Um, little things like that that I find funny. Um, when Deacon and Nick start fighting and they both turn into bats and everybody's like, bat fight, bat fight, bat fight. I found that funny. Um, I think to go in like more of a cinematic, uh, thought here, like, I think they get away with a lot because of the low light of the movie, which I think is smart, not, not a criticism. Like, they get away with a lot of the way that they cut things and the way that they stage and transform the actors into different things and and how they do the cuts and everything like that because the entire movie is at night um, and they just are doing cuts consistently um, to make it to make those effects happen. And so, like, I could see someone being bothered by the fact that you don't see very well in the movie, but I think it works in their favor. Nah, I didn't. I personally didn't have a much of a problem like seeing things like seeing details then again i kind of wasn't really looking for details that often so yeah um i think the way that pete gets uh killed is funny with the him going up in flames 
Um, and I also think that that sets up a really funny scene, which again, could have been an episode of the show where the police show up <laughs> and Viago's looking at the camera going, you know, even more police could show up here, maybe even Christians. Um, and all the hypnosis moments where they're, they're blatantly ignoring the murder of the vampire hunter in the basement, but the police are still finding like, oh no, you gotta fix, you gotta fix that pipe. And you know what? That's actually not regulation. We're gonna, we're gonna have to check you up on that. Um, and the fact that the police are just doing, finding other non-vampire issues, I think is a fun concept. Um, when they... They, what again could have been another episode of a t- of the TV show where they finally decide to shame Nick and they would like it's time for the procession of shame and then in that same dandyism humor they're just walking around him pointing him going shame 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 it works for me um at the and then the last the last thing is that like when people are start to figure out at the ball that Stu is human and the zombies looking to be like are you are you are you pre-deceased? <laughs> I think that's funny. Anyway, that was it for me. Also, the police blamed the dog for what Stu did, and I'm really sad about that. Um, anyway, that's that's it. That's it. I really like what we do in the shadows. Um, I and I think yeah, it's a natural progression for it to just be a TV show, and it is a TV show. And maybe we should watch the TV show at some point. I'm good. <laughs> oh God! You and your stubborn bullshit. I don't. I don't think you can call me stubborn. At this point. You are. How? You why? I watched the entire. You're very movie. stubborn. It's the only movie. So of the three, the show is different. It's the only movie of the three. Spoiler alert! That I did just sit down and watch the entire thing. <laughs> you didn't even finish Jojo Rabbit. You son of a bitch. I mean, technically, I finished it. <laughs> You, TJ, this is a problem. Look, I will say right now, it might sound like a controversial statement. I, You have to believe me on this. Genuinely, I want you to think of all the things just from this season that we've watched. Like, remember that we, st- oh, I guess the two seasons that make up like a year. Uh, so in September, we started with like video game month. And I watched horror movies when I'm not a horror movie guy. Like, and I watched the fucking Rise of Goddamn Skywalker last week. I need you to hear me when I tell you this genuinely was the most difficult viewing experience for me. These three. Well, two. It was the last two. Like, it was actually really difficult for me to, like, stick it out through all three of them. It was easier to watch The Rise of Skywalker. That is... I don't understand, Saying though. something. I don't understand. What is it about these movies that, like, makes it difficult for well, you? Well, I already kind of said what it is with what we do in the shadows. It's just, like... I mean, I'm not really very invested. Like, the comedy is fine for the most part but like after the first you know 10-15 minutes there weren't a lot of things that really made me laugh out loud particularly hard um and there were a lot of things that you know I'm just like kind of indifferent to or I genuinely just don't care about because I don't really care about any of the characters um 
And then, as we've mentioned, it really doesn't have much of a plot. So it's the thing of, like, if you're not really here for a lot of the humor and you're not here for the characters and there's not really much of a plot, you really don't have much to kind of latch on to other than the fact that, oh, I'm watching a movie. Which, I mean, yeah, if I were watching this movie with, like, a group of friends, it would have been less difficult but it was it's just me in my room and the movie has all of the responsibility of entertaining me and it just kind of didn't all right well let's move on to jojo rabbit because you got trevor talking about fascism which means he ain't need he doesn't need you to be his co-host um (laughs) well i take that as a sign that i've been fired (laughs) <laughs> this is now uh we, we we separated into two new podcasts it's tj sitting in front of a, a tv screen watching movies he doesn't want to watch with those like things that keep your eyeballs open and it's trevor talking about fascism uh funny enough they are not linked um <laughs> but no uh so jojo rabbit is our final and so you, you did some 15 second skipping i'm guessing i did some big skipping really so like it's but like so it's hard for me to even like say so what did you what did you skip? I believe I You don't know what you skipped. I believe <laughs> I gave it till about halfway of the halfway through the movie. So more than my usual thing of like uh, I give it like 30 minutes. Like I did I watched an hour of the movie. And when it was abundantly clear that one I just wasn't that interested in anything or anyone. And two, I I really did know where it was going. It was one of those, again, after Boy, where I definitely knew where everything was going. I then skipped enough ahead to where, like, things had maybe progressed a little bit. Like, there was, like, a now a new thing. It was a new sequence, a new sequence tension. Uh, For those not familiar, in a three-act structure, each act is made of sequences. There's two in Act 1, two in Act 3, and four in Act 2. So I basically just skipped to where there was something else going on. And I encountered the Stephen Merchant scene finding... Yeah, okay. That's what I I figured. And so I kind of just put everything together of like, okay, so they're trying to pass off her as like his sister. Yeah. And yeah. there's things going on, and he has a tense relationship with her and is jealous of the um, the boyfriend. And I called way long ago that the boyfriend was dead, and so I knew... Well, I- it's a Holocaust movie, so yeah. Well, more specifically, <laughs> it's a World War II movie, so yeah. yeah. I figured if it wasn't the Holocaust... Yeah, it was just dying in war. Um also, it's just, I don't know, it's something about the first letter, the first pretend letter that he wrote and how she reacted to it. I'm like, oh, he's dead. That's why she yeah. is acting this way of like, she's not just going, he didn't write that. Like, he, she's she's using the fake words to just at least kind of pretend that he's still here a little bit. Like, I, I got it. Um, And then Scarlett Johansson being very clearly on the side of good and having to tiptoe that line with her Nazi sympathizer son, I was like, oh, she's dead. Oh, absolutely. She's dead. 
Okay. All right. Well, you, you you took the you took the weight out of my notes on that by by going. Well, there. I. <laughs> I mean, in a Holocaust movie where you save Nazis, I don't know of a ton that end merrily and without even a little death. So, like, I, I knew the kids were probably fine throughout the entire movie. So I'm like, oh, so then, yeah, the only adult <laughs> in this situation is probably going to die. <laughs> um, All right. Well, yeah. Okay, good to know. I I just needed to know what you didn't see, so that I if I needed to talk about it or not. Um, yeah, I made a so, point okay. to watch certain scenes once I put together pieces of like what happened. Okay, so yeah, Jojo Rabbit set in Nazi Germany. Uh, little boy named uh, Wait Frick. What is his What is his full name? Um, anyway, uh, Jojo um, lives with his mother, who's played by Scarlett Johansson, and is a part of the Nazi youth movement. Um, and essentially we see a whole montage of him going to what is essentially the Boy Scouts and, uh, the Boy Scouts of America are actually kind of a fascist institution and the, the Girl Scouts really need to help them reform because the Boy Scouts are really not great and definitely part of the alt-right pipeline. Anyway, uh, commentary aside, um, we see him going through like the Nazi youth programs and it's played off as, as ridiculous and, uh, you know, something like a, a completely over the top interpretation um and that same kind of dandyism being represented through through the nazis um and we see that he has similar to somebody having their imaginary friend emulating like spider-man he has an imaginary friend played by taika waititi who is adolf hitler um and so essentially we learn throughout the movie um as he's going through his experiences with uh the nazi youth at the latter end of the war uh when there's vague news that they might be losing um and people are just trying to keep things together in their small german town um he discovers that his mother has been hiding a young jewish girl a little uh, a little bit older than her you know and old enough to be his babysitter she's probably 16 he's probably 12 um 10 12 10 to 12 years old and he, based on all the things he's been told throughout his life, is terrified of this girl. And slowly throughout the movie, uh, that that kind of learning begins to be broken down as he gets to know her and gets to see the world kind of crumble around as Germany loses the war and the facade of fascism is broken for him and he learns to be a good person and not a Nazi. Um and throughout that period of time, you know, you see his wife or his his wife, God, his mom, Rosie, uh, doing things to help the anti, you know, anti-Nazi war effort um, by like placing little slips of paper, propaganda, uh, anti-propaganda slips of paper around the city and hiding the girl. And then we later, Jojo, while just going about his day after not seeing his mother for a while, because she tends to disappear from every now and then. Uh, finds her dead, um, that she has been caught. Um, and that kind of causes him to spiral out um, towards the latter half of the movie. And then eventually uh, the American troops roll in uh, and essentially liberate the town. She, uh, the, his, uh, damn it, what's the name of the girl? Because I'm, I'm just thinking, it's Elsa, Elsa. Um, Elsa is able to walk out of the, of the house without fear. Um, and they essentially pave their way together to try to, you know, in the latter, in the end of the movie, it's implied that they are going to try to build a life together um, as kind of a new brother and sister relationship. So, yeah, uh, that's a, that's actually honestly a very poor description of Jojo Rabbit. I'm just trying to be quick. Um, but yeah, so I think I one thing I want to touch on is like the ways in which we represent Hitler in media. 
because this is something that I've I've listened to and heard a lot of commentary about, and I find it interesting because it's also worth noting that Taika Waititi is half uh, like half uh, Maori and half Jewish, um, and so it's interesting that he definitely plays into what a lot of people have written about as the ways in which Jews represent. Uh, like the way that the Jewish people in media represent Hitler and the way that non-Jewish people represent Hitler. Um, and so like the biggest comparison I can think of is like the crazy, but still threatening version of Hitler in like inglorious bastards versus the ways in which things like Jojo rabbit and the producers present Hitler as this ridiculous thing because, and I side with them in this, that like fascism is not cool and is ridiculous at the end of the day that's i think one of the biggest strengths of this movie is that like it is one of the best movies in illustrating that even though this is a very dangerous and very oppressive system at the end of the day it's a bunch of incompetent fools wielding power they don't deserve and posturing to one another in the most ridiculous of way. Like that is at the end of the day, one of the greatest weapons against fascism is our ability to mock it and, and make it smaller because it does seek to, to strip the rights of, of everyone else around it. And there are ways in which the very beginning of the movie from the ridiculousness of the imaginary friend concept, all the way through the various uh, Nazi youth training stuff that we see exhibit, like we exhibit how just ridiculous, a fascist dominated culture is and the way in which it like kind of reflects our own. I'm pausing for you to respond. And if you don't have anything then I'm going to keep going, I'm definitely going to keep that in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But yeah, so essentially like Taika chooses to represent the only actual, cause we never see posters of Adolf Hitler or anything like that. We only ever see like text posters. And so the only time we see like a Hitler character is in Jojo's mind and the ways. And like I said earlier, like to him in the culture that he exists in the way that the film illustrates it, the, the culture that he exists in, that is the superhero that the Fuhrer is the superhero and that is who he emulates. And in order to, you know, kind of grow up and have that imaginary friend, he sees this much like a lot of people's imaginary friends. It's sometimes people use imaginary friends to blame, you know, their bad behavior on and others use it as a way to like create this role model for themselves. That is their best friend that they get to be the sidekick for. And so that is in the culture. He doesn't really have any other model for that except Adolf Hitler. And it's really interesting. And I'll get touch that on that in my later notes about how when the when the culture itself starts to crumble, how that's internalized self-hatred um, and that internalized hatred of others starts to crumble as well through the way that we represent Hitler in that. Um, Sam Rockwell's character is a great example about how like fascists are just incompetent fops who use ideology and violence as compensation and posturing. We learn very quickly that he is doing this Nazi youth camp and running it because he fucked up a battle earlier and all he wants is to be seen as this glorious general when in reality he's incompetent and that's that's why he's doing this. That's why he has to sit there and do these things. Um, you know, a, a shell shocked man who has nothing else to, to show for himself. Um, 
like the prejudice that they see is taught and they, they use rebel Wilson to teach it in the most ridiculous ways of having kids draw the monster, the monstrous enemy uh, that, that they say are the, are the Jewish people. Um, and so you, you get step by step that prejudice is taught um, and that they are, you know, training them to be soldiers when they don't need to be um, that they deserve to be children. Um, and then the, where it turns from being humorous to being threatening is not with the adults and not with, you know, the military figures it's with the older boys when they finally get to the woods and essentially the older boys are challenging them to kill a rabbit because the if you their logic is if you cannot kill a rabbit then you cannot kill the enemy and you're a coward and we will kill you um and so jojo is presented with the opportunity to kill the rabbit but he sets the rabbit free and they start chasing him which is where he gets the nickname jojo rabbit um and so uh, the note that here is that like when fascists dominate the culture, no one wins in that hierarchy except for the person on the very top. And that's who those boys are in that scene. Those boys exist here to bully Jojo into compliance with their worldview that he has to be a killer, that he has to be prepared to do anything to protect the culture. And Jojo, this is the first sign that we get that Jojo has the capacity to refuse that. Um, and the culture will do anything in its power to make sure that if anybody does defy it, when it has that level of dominance, that they are going to beat that out of that person, which is shown by the fact that they do like beat, they are actually, I can't remember. Do they actually, yeah, they beat him up. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my first manifesto of this whole thing about how like the movie does such a great job of showing the oppressiveness and the ridiculousness of that culture of, of nazi fascism i would like it if rebel wilson wasn't in this movie i actually agree with you on that i don't like rebel wilson just in general um like i think they could have gotten plenty of other people to do that just fine i think we're i think it's also you know a testament to like the comedic skills a lot of of a lot of these non-comedic actors as well um notably i think that Rosie, Scarlett Johansson's character, is both fun and just a damn good mom the entire time. Um, like, under the circumstances, the given circumstances of the film, this is a woman who is trying her damnedest to give a young boy who is caught up in propaganda a normal childhood, a childhood that is worthwhile, and trying to teach him right from wrong under underneath the umbrella of this oppressive system um and you see her subverting it slightly all the time and just giving him opportunities to really play uh when they're about to leave the house for the first time she says you better be prepared it's dangerous out there and they get to they get to play a little bit and he loves his mom and so like that's such an important dynamic in this to to give some degree of joy in the backdrop of this insane situation yeah. Yeah. They, when they're walking through the town square shortly after that, they set up the shoe, like the, the eye level of Jojo being the shoes of those who are hung for, for being traitors, um, which is set up for the, the death scene later. Um, like they definitely, when he discovers Elsa in the, uh, upstairs, like side attic, um, they definitely play up the chase from Jojo's perspective um, and the fear that he's experiencing. And they shoot it a little bit like a horror movie to indicate that like, this is what Jojo is feeling right now because he has no other recourse, but to fear, uh, to fear the Jewish girl because he has no concept of who they are. Um, 
I found the Jesse Owens reference interesting um, when he's like going back and forth with Hitler about his imaginary Hitler about the situation. Um, and he just lets uh, the imaginary Hitler let slip the Jesse Owens bit. Do you know do you know that history? Yeah. Jesse Owens, uh, the okay. black track star, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, and then like on top of that, in the next few scenes that we see to reiterate the whole like Hitler being mythologized in his ma- mind, like he he talks to him like a best friend and he's like, yeah, no. And he tells this fantastical story about how he survived an assassination, which is not the actual history and totally not true. And then they leave the conversation being like, I'm going to go have dinner. We're having unicorn. And just the the concept that like this, this is a fantastically propagandized figure that he is turning into a superhero that shouldn't be. Um one thing, one line that I liked, even though Rebel Wilson is delivering it, is like Rebel Wilson does this whole thing about her uncle uh, blaming all of his personal shit on Jewish hypnotism. Um, and it's just, once again, another point out and something that parallels the world that we live in right now with, you know, people on the far right here, the people who will blame everything about their life on the scapegoat minority in the United States, whether that's immigrants or or Muslims or or, uh, you know, any other marginalized group, um, the fact that they have are complete and abject failures, um, you know, that's indicative of this movie. It really is pulling in a lot of very specific things about that time period that resonate with the world that we live in right now. Um, I like, and I like, so turning a little bit to Elsa's character, um, how did you, did you like, did, how did you feel about Elsa as a character? If Jojo is, you know, a little bit hard to jump onto because if we are looking to, you know, give the audience a perspective of a, of a Nazi youth, how did you feel about Elsa's character? She's fine. Okay. Um, I do like how quippy she is. <laughs> it's so funny. You're like, she's fine. I'm like, cool. I'm going to go on, on my positive rant. Um, I like how she's like, we're like you, but human. Um, and later she says, uh, like later she's drawing, uh, to give, cause he's essentially saying, oh, I'm blackmailing you to tell me everything about the Jews so I can report it back to, to Hitler. Um, and she draws the picture of Jews inside of, uh, you know, his head. And he goes, this is just a stupid picture of my head. And she goes, yeah, that's where we live. Essentially bridging the metaphor of like everything that you've been taught is all in your head. It's not real. Um, the massive hoops that Rosie jumps through to, to raise her boy, like with the bike riding scene, I think is, um, you know, the bike riding scene where then they see the soldiers coming back battered and broken to the town and just giving that juxtaposition of Rosie doing her best to, to raise him and give him the joy of a bike ride and a night and a day out with his mother in the wake of, of this, you know, in, uh, in the wake of war. Um, and even in that sequence, when she is walking on the ledge above him with her very specific red shoes at his eye level, again, sets us up for the two things come together and coalesce in a later scene. Um, her her setting up that dancing is for people who are free. And at the very end of the movie, they have the opportunity to dance. And it's a little bit corny. I didn't like it quite the first time. But setting it up here that that freedom and individuality and being able to let yourself loose and experience joy in the world is the enemy of fascism. Um, and then as things kind of spiral out of control, I like the choices that they make to show to just further the ridiculousness that is closer to reality. It's less Hitler being in his head and more his best friend shows up in a paper uniform. That's incredibly uncomfortable. And they play a little bit for jokes, but like 
these are real things that happened. And these are the kind of things that they people that fascist regimes will resort to, to keep their, to keep their power. You know, uniforms are a powerful thing if you let them be powerful. And so the fact that they have, have no resources and yet still have to posture around in uniforms um, is a major factor. Um, I want to, and on top of that, like the ridiculousness when Stephen Merchants and the Gestapo show up and they have to hile every single person in the room and each person has to have an interaction with each person that they're greeting is just one more step of like making everything a little bit more ridiculous to show how ridiculous the situation is. Um, so like when when he loses his mom is while while okay sure predictable i think it's really well done when they piece the pieces together to show her shoes at his eye level they don't show any other part of her body they just illustrate enough for us to understand who is hanging there and then we see jojo's reaction and then he tries to tie her shoe and he doesn't know how to tie her shoe and it's even another nail in the coffin of he's really lost without her she she was absolutely keeping him afloat during all of this in a way that he doesn't quite understand until that moment. And that's the beginning of his really true turn to saying, this is not who, who I am. Uh, you know, war is not a place for children. The total cultural domination is only going to destroy the world and the joy that they have there. Um, and so the last kind of note I have on this movie that I really applaud is the ways in which we use Jojo being a fanatic in the beginning of the movie to where he ends up at the end of the movie to essentially examine youth and just people in general and how they interact with propaganda and fascism in the way that it's all this self-internalized rules and regulations and rights and wrongs that are meant to oppress other people. And so Jojo happens to be in the in-groups. And so we see him in the beginning being gung-ho about everything and and ready to join up and and just spitting back propaganda that he hears over and over and over again and then slowly but surely throughout meeting Elsa and his mom and the the world breaking down around him each of those pillars of his of his belief system just slowly evaporates and when he gets injured by the grenade and sees himself as this hideous thing that is the culture around him telling him that he is hideous that is something he has internalized he believes that he is no longer worthy of this grand club that he wanted to be a part of because that grand club deliberately called him someone who is you know deliberately called him a derogatory term for somebody who now has a disability um and looks at him like he does not belong and that he is is ugly and he but what we see is more so him saying that about himself, and it takes the process of the movie for him to shed some of that, some of that self consciousness and shed some of that self, uh, you know, self hate. And on top of that, as he's shedding the self hate, he's starting to shed the hate of others. He's starting to shed the hate of Elsa and start to see her as a person and. It, it, you know, as he says, fall in love with Elsa, even though they have an age difference and they make it very clear at the end of the movie that she's like, I love you like a brother. We're not going to do this. Um, and pausing to get my thoughts back. Oh, yeah. And so through the course of the movie, as those things are shed, then he has to reckon one more time with 
his imaginary Hitler, who shows back up dilapidated in one of the scenes just just pre-climax of the movie where he's confronting him and he suddenly is no longer a friend. He suddenly is that threatening Nazi that has turned on this other person who no longer is their follower. And when you remove the power of that prejudice, that like the power of that prejudice is no longer hanging over Jojo. The war has been lost. He doesn't need to be a Nazi. Um, it's a, you know, and so he's able to essentially kick Hitler in the balls and expel him from his mind because he finally has gone through that process. And one of the big like breaking moments for him is when Elsa finally stops him. And it's one of the best performances of the movie. And I really do like this actress. Um, and she's gone on to do some cool stuff is when she looks at him and she says, you are not a Nazi. You're just a kid who wants to be in the club that everyone else around you is in. You are not a Nazi. You are not like them. You do not have to be like them. You shouldn't want to be like them. And that is kind of my rounding out the end of this long rant about this movie is that that's why I really like this movie is that in a world that in a world where YouTube very easily sends kids innocently down into videos that are going to create, give them ideologies that will hurt others. It's really important to have a movie like this to give an example to kids and adults of how we play into these things without thinking about them. And we have the power to claw our way out of the things that we are learned, the prejudices we have learned about each other um, because it's only going to serve to crumble the world and, and rob us of our joy and monologue. Cool. So is that the episode? Do you have anything else? I mean, like, I really don't. Okay. Do you agree with anything that I've kind of presented here? Yeah, sure. Okay. Like, <laughs> that's... Are you mad at me? No, but, like, are you starting to see why this was the most difficult viewing session for me? N no, I think I just get really enthusiastic about anti-fascism. <laughs> I agree with everything you say. I agree with every note that you had about the movie. I just didn't feel anything. <laughs> okay. Like, that's probably there that's probably the most difficult experience I have watching movies is like if a movie sucks, there is still something about it that makes it an active viewing experience. I'm actively going, oh, this movie's bad. Oh, and I'm actively going, it can't get much worse, can it? Like, it's like, it's a participation. When I watch movies I love, obviously, I'm I'm invested, I'm, I'm all in, yada, yada, yada. Even movies that don't 100% gel with me, but like look beautiful, or there's stunning animation, or there's just one actor giving, like, that great performance. Like, you know, even that stuff is, like, there's an element of me being active watching this movie. It's always the movies that are, like, good, but I have no actual connection to him at all. Like, most Oscar movies... Most like, you know, which this is one of like this movie. He won an Oscar for screenplay for this. Right. Like it's one of those movies. And like genuinely, I was kind of nervous about Spencer 
for this reason, that it would be a thing that I don't know much about the subject. It's super serious. It's shot and edited like true Oscar bait. The only reason I was actively into it at all was because of Kristen Stewart's performance and because of the overall like message that it had a positive catharsis eventually about being yourself, being true to who you are, fuck everybody else. And also genuinely those scenes with Kristen Stewart and uh, the kids are really bright spots in a movie that could threaten to be very suffocating and very challenging for somebody like me to watch. Like Spencer's one of those kind of outliers of like, if I had to, Yes, I could watch it again. Will I ever willingly watch it again? I don't know. But I was at least able to get it through that first time. Most other movies like that, though, I don't have all those things. I don't have all those connections. And so that's why sometimes just certain movies, even if they're good, if they don't get me on a personal level, it's just like... I don't know what I don't know what I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> have ra- you ever seen Have you ever seen Life is Beautiful? I've heard of Life is Beautiful. Wait, that's also okay. a Holocaust movie, right? Yes. Um I've heard it's, it's a controversial it, movie. It's it's Bellini. Um it's Roberto Bellini. Um this is the this is the movie where when he won the international Oscar for it, he was sitting directly behind Steven Spielberg and he leaped over Steven Spielberg's chair in order to collect his Oscar. Um, you know, Life is Beautiful is it's kind of it's kind of like it's a wonderful life in a way where it's like the majority of the movie is just setting up the main character's world. And it's similar to this movie in that the director is also the main, one of the main characters. Um, and it is setting, it's setting up his life. And then you get little, you get little hints. Like, uh, there's a scene where he's visiting a butcher and the butcher's children are Adolfo and, uh, Benito. Um, and, and then the turn happens where like the, literally the, him and his son are sent to a Italian, like a, are sent from Italy to Austria to a concentration camp. And he has to essentially, the the father who is played by Bellini, uh, has to essentially create a game for his child so his child doesn't know quite what's going on. Um, and so his child keeps his innocence. Um, and so he essentially, every time that they are confronted with the, like the inspections, um, with the, when they first get brought into the camp, he has to like give his son little side eyes and side funny faces to be like, play along, play along. It's a game. They want you to play this game with them. You got to stand up straight. That's the, the name of the game. And he ends up giving his life to protect his son until they're liberated. Um, and the entire time his son is just, you know, enjoying this time with his father while his father's trying to save his son's life. Um, and while I would say that Life is Beautiful is a better movie than Jojo Rabbit, there is an d- element of Rosie and the way that Taika plays off the the Hitler, um, like the hit for Hitler uh, mockery that is reminiscent of Life is Beautiful in the way that it's like when you place a child in this situation, you have the opportunity to to find the joy in darkness in a way sorry i don't remember why that was a tangent off of what you were saying um i think i think what i was trying to say is like you know 
I understand like not you not jumping onto this movie. It was very much a joy for me to rewatch this movie out of all of them because I see those threads between the, this, those two movies as a comparison. And I really like life is beautiful. It's, it's one of my like most memorable movie experiences. Um, and so like, that's what I gleaned from this movie. That was why I was very adamant because, yeah, I, you and I talked before we actually went into recording this episode of like, are we actually doing this? And I knew you had a hard time with it. And I knew I'd have to, you know, I'd be bringing a lot of notes into the into the conversation. But um, this is this is largely why I was so passionate about talking about Taika to kind of zoom out on the conversation is like he's doing a lot of really great things that are his own, but still emblematic about of other really good roots that I really want to see where he goes with his style of doing things. And I like, even beyond what we've watched here, I like a lot of his other stuff. So yeah, to, so to zoom out a little bit, like, you know, overall, you had a hard time with these movies. Is there anything that you've gleaned about, like, cause we, you know, this is what we, you know, try to do with these, these director and actor episodes. Like, is there anything you glean from, from Taika as a stylistic thing that's specific to him or that you like that he does that you'd like to see elsewhere. That's the thing. I, I went into this being enthusiastic about learning more about Taika. And then I came out kind of worried because now I've realized that there's never been a Taika Waititi movie. I actually liked Interesting. Okay. Like, because the only other one is Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> which I've. Well, we didn't watch. We didn't watch Hunt for the Wilderbeasts, and we also didn't watch Our Flag Means Death. That's true. I mean, if anything, from the stuff that I've gleaned and kind of heard, Our Flag Means Death might be the thing that kind of gives me a thing to like in Taika's discography. Uh, filmography, yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, I mean, I guess, I guess there's a chance Thor: Love and Thunder could be good. I guess, and it depend. Honestly, it depends on what the Star Wars project is. Because I think what about it specifically, like what about specifically his style is making, do you think it's making it hard for you to kind of latch onto it? Because like all three of his movies that I watched for this, even when I found things that I liked in them, my attention span was going haywire. Like, because I now that I've watched all three of them, I'm realizing that like, yeah, even if there are elements that I objectively admire or like or can relate to, there's not a lot of stuff for me to focus on. There's not a lot of like characters or plot lines that like kind of grab me and go like, you know, this is really interesting. Um, because I just kind of, I'm, I watched all three of these pretty passively. They just kind of happened in front of me. And I don't know, I could have been folding clothes. I could have been looking at my phone. I could have been, you know, doing basically anything else and still watched it. And I don't think much of anything would change. 
Um, and again, that doesn't mean that any three of these movies are particularly bad. It just means that, like, for what they are, they are not what I go to the movies to get in, res- in response. Like, these are three types of movies that... And, of course, it, there's also elements that don't help all any of the three of them. Like, Boy and JoJo, for me, were movies that, you know, didn't... For me, didn't really offer up anything new that I hadn't already seen in other forms of media in some way, shape, or form. And what we do in the shadows, as we mentioned, doesn't really have a plot. So for a show, maybe could have been kind of quirky and fun and led organically to a climax in multiple episodes in a season. But for a movie, there's not really build up to anything. Like, it's just kind of these vignettes of like, you know, it's kind of like Do the Right Thing. When we covered Do the Right Thing, it was like kind of these vignettes that are loosely related but it's more so like the setting is the real star of everything and the backdrop of the racial tensions and the time that it was made and how relevant everything was and that if anything was the thing that the one like strand that was kind of keeping me to do the right thing and also obviously me being black I relate to a lot of the shit that went on in the movie from a black perspective, but really the thing that kept it together was the fact that all the different elements of the setting was really the thing that was driving everything forward. And to an extent, that's kind of what happened with Boy, where it was kind of interesting to see this part of New Zealand and you know be introduced to certain elements of the culture and obviously certain elements of Taika's childhood that he probably definitely like channeled into making this feel really authentic but then in what we do in the shadows it's kind of not the same because then some of the more interesting parts for me were where they used vampire lore to kind of like have these little gags but for me, it was more just informative of what vamp- what these little detailed elements of vampire lore were because I'm not huge into vampire lore. So it's not really like a bunch of references that I get. It's more so me just going like, oh, yeah, that's – oh, so that's also a thing. Okay, so that's also a thing. Oh, so I'm learning about that. And it's not really like entertaining in a way. It's just more like I'm observing this thing happening. Uh, and then JoJo, honestly, there is an ele- there there is just an element of I've seen a lot of World War II stuff, and in games I've played a lot of World War II stuff, and I've seen elements of this movie everywhere, and for me, there's just not enough interesting happening. There's, like, these things that kind of ping in my subconscious of, like, recognizing this, recognizing that, figuring this out, figuring that out. The Sam Rockwell, like, kind of turn at the end was kind of nice. And then, I mean, he just dies. And I've already gone on and on about the whole, oh, person redeems themselves in a way and then dies kind of trope. So... 
there's just for these three movies specifically individually there's just not a stuff not a lot of stuff that connects to me as a person as somebody who loves film and loves storytelling there's just there's just not enough there and then obviously my stuff with Thor Ragnarok we've already kind of touched on in a previous episode go listen to that if you're curious um I, long story short the stuff with Thor Ragnarok doesn't have too much to actually do with Taika it's just that Taika was the one that stepped into the situation and gave them exactly what they wanted and what many other people do want but I am not one of those people um so and ironically we will revisit Thor sooner rather than later um, so we'll get to see how somebody other than Taika deals with Thor post-Ragnarok, but in due time. So I guess the too-long-didn't-listen version of this is just I acknowledge that these movies mean a lot to certain people, that they are really good in certain people's eyes, and I just have to chalk it up to a matter of taste and a matter of what you want your film viewing experience to be. Um, so that's all I got. Okay. I will give you your taste. Um, I give me my taste. I really like (laughs) what (laughs) that's what we do at the top of each episode. I get your tongue and I scrape it of all the tastes. Uh, so you don't have any, and then when you can say the word objective as many times as you want, um, because you don't have taste. And then I give it back to you. And that's how it works. Um, I mean, you joke, but I'm sure many people listening to this podcast would argue that I don't have taste. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean, truthfully told, you were right to be a little scared at the top of this episode, because because what I'll say here is that, like, I think. I think the reason we're having the conversation of is Taika as talented as we say it is, or are we just going to get disappointed is because his humor and the dandy like approach to things and approach to humor is very endearing to a large portion of the, of the, of the media audience. I think he is just incredibly endearing in what we have seen of him in the past 10 years. And I think that is possibly a way in which he might skirt some criticism. Um, and also I think that like, you know, the, the white people can be shitty. So like, you know, you, you, you take that with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, no, I like having, having you had these, this experience with these movies when I know of large swath of people who do like these movies, it really does give me pause to say like, okay, is the thing that's working here just charm? Like, are we being charmed or are these strong movies? And I think the argument here, I think the argument works differently with each of the three movies. I think Boy, yeah, is definitely doing a lot off of charm. I think Taika's charm and the and the way in which he goes about stuff is definitely doing a lot in that movie. I think what we do in The Shadows is not just him. I think uh, Jermaine Clement uh, was a major like factor in that as well. Yeah. And so I would chop that up to like that cultural segment there. But the fact that we did watch Jojo like Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, definitely like changing a 
changing a franchise and giving it a complete facelift in a style that was very reminiscent of his like 1980s. Yeah, fucking let's do it this way. Um, and so that's endearing and that gets people on board with that franchise again. And it may not hold the test of time. The reason I said I'm scared for Thor Love and Thunder is because the trailer to me makes it seem a little too schlocky. Like I needed a little bit less schlock based on what they're showing us, especially if Christian Bale's gore is going to be the villain because it's a very dark villain. And so I'm like, how are you going to balance that fun of Thor Ragnarok with the true, like really dark elements of what that character probably deserves? Like you can't brighten up gore and have it be a f- like a, a justifiable like place to put him in. So I'm, I'm really interested to see if that's going like, to work. You're wondering, you're worried he's going to be another Ronan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, honestly. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way to think of it. Um, that, or he's going to be totally dark and the rest of the movie is going to be like an explosion of color and light and, yeah. and levity and they're not going to work. So like Thor, <laughs> Thor, Love and Thunder might be, you know, one might be the crux of this conversation of like, is Taika getting away with things on charm now? I really like Jojo based on everything I've said. And I think that's where we get into the, if we see him do some things and maybe it's just a matter of, you know, doing that same level of intricate storytelling and looking at the topic of, you know, if it's not fascism, maybe it's something else um, in a different context, not world war two. We've seen a lot of world war two stuff. Maybe it's him achieving that level of what I th- see in Jojo Rabbit in another location that might be a testament to like where he's going to go next and what kind of legacy he's going to leave. Because if the legacy is just charm, then that has to just kind of be what we acknowledge it as. Ye. Yeah. That was that was a good end with the thesis. I like where we ended up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Yeah. Any last? Well, I mean, I think that was your last. Yeah, that's my last bit. That's my tie up. So uh, that all being said. uh, I mean, I did already hardcore tease next week's episode. (laughs) So, yep. (laughs) I mean, this is the time where I would usually tease next week's episode. But it's already been teased. Toast? All right, and until next time, I've been TJ Patrick. I'm not even doing like the main theme, which is why some people are going to get very confused. I was doing the lead up to the main theme. Yeah, dancing is for people who are free. Thanks, everybody. Who are you? Oh, Trevor Catalano. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, until next time, be a daddy, dickhead. Hey. <laughs>